Welcome to Aircrew Interview, I'm Mike King, your host, and this is part one of our interview with former RAF armourer, Andrew King. In this episode, Andrew chats about why he became interested in aviation, joining the RAF and why he became an armourer, working on the Harriers for his first tour, moving on to the Jaguars, becoming a teacher, and finally getting involved in aircraft preservation. If you enjoy our videos and podcasts and would like us to continue putting out regular quality content, head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview where you can donate monthly and in return you will get rewards ranging from early interview viewings, bonus clips, credited as a producer and much more. Thank you and enjoy. So Andy, when did you first become interested in aviation? Uh, so probably my earliest aviation memories I think uh, all due to my granddad um, he was in the Air Force during the war um, spent a lot of time with my grandparents when I was younger and it kind of that influence started at an early age one of my earliest memories is being out with my gran and granddad and uh, being at driving past Church Fenton just outside York my grandfather was based there during the war and uh, they used to have a Spitfire Gate Guardian, um, a, a, an actual Spitfire, not a plastic one like you see now. Yeah. And we, um, my granddad said, oh, do you want to come and have a look? And like little little lad, like five or six, yeah, yeah, I'll go and have a, <laughs> yeah, I'll go and have a look at that. Um, and because he had the gift of the gab, he went up to the guardroom and said, oh, you know, can my grandson come and have a look at this uh, Spitfire? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll look. Yeah, of course you can. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll open it up. Nick can have a sit in it. So, you know, no health and safety back then or any concerns. Just like up you get, chuck me up into this Spitfire and had a sit in a Spitfire age, you know, five or six it was. Um, and then many years later when the uh, Church Fenton Air Show was on uh, back in 2017, I think it was, Great Yorkshire Air Show, mm-hmm. they... Um, uh, that Spitfire came came back to uh, had been restored and came back to Church Fenton, and I got to see it off. So the first aircraft I ever sat in, I got to, you know, forty plus years later, see that aircraft off again from the same base my grandfather was that's based on. Cool, <laughs> so you know, pretty pretty big thing for me. So yeah. that's pretty much about my first uh, first memory of aviation. And then it's all gone from there gone uphill or downhill depends which way you want to <laughs> put see it. it yeah so what year did you actually join the air force so i joined the air force in february 96 mm-hmm. so i'd always kind of harbored a interest in doing it um and uh, just it was one of those one of those things that i guess was kind of a foregone conclusion almost mm-hmm. um so yeah, joined 96, wasn't really sure what to do, went to see all the careers guys, saw this job called you know, Armourer and thought that looks pretty funky and might have some of that mm-hmm. and uh, so that was that. So yeah, joined up February 96, um, did all my initial basic training stuff at Halton, um, which was, kind of having to think now, X weeks, eight, I think eight weeks probably back then it was, um, and then came just down the road to Cosford and that was my uh, technical training so uh, arrived there I think it's probably about the April time and then it was through to the end of the year my initial mechanics course um, didn't really know 
where I fancied getting posted or to what. So it was kind of the look of the draw. Um, and then turned out my posting at the end was to Jaguars, to Coltishall. So there were six of us actually off the off our mechanics course. So two of us posted to 54, two to six squadron and two to 41. So um, just after the new year, uh, 1997, we all sort of convoy down to a new life and start at uh, at Coltishall. So mm-hmm. um, very different, obviously, from training sort of in at the deep end, um, working on the on the Jaguar. Great aircraft to work on, uh, fairly straightforward. Um, they were sort of the earlier mark of Jaguar then. So GR1As, GR1Bs. Um, and then in the process of various upgrades to Jaguar 96 and Jaguar 97 standard, mainly avionics related things. So it was a bit of a mixed bag. Went here, there and everywhere with them, got off and about uh, various different places. Spent quite a bit of time in Italy at uh, Gioia de Col in sort of on the uh, southwestern, uh, southeastern sorry, coast of uh, Italy, providing air cover over uh, Bosnia because mm-hmm. of all the uh, ongoing conflict over there. Um, aircraft were doing a lot of, uh, not actively bombing at the time, but we were flying armed all the time uh, and doing uh, a lot of reconnaissance work, photographing you know, what had been going on. Unfortunately, some of the mass grave things, it was all formed part of the investigation, things mm-hmm. like that. Um, so we spent a lot of time there in Italy, uh, did other overseas stuff with them, Sardinia to now we were pretty much one some of the last Air Force squadrons to go and do the traditional armament camps there. Uh, where else do we go? Holland, uh, all over, detachments in the U and things like that. So it was good, you know, good aircraft to work on. Um, you know, for me it was, you know, a bit of a, uh, you know, quite an interesting thing, first operational squadron. So, yeah, it was really good. From there in, when was it? So... 98 it was, so posted from there to uh, back down the road to Cosford um, and then my fittest course, because I joined up under the MEC tech scheme, so you were going to get promotion to junior technician, so Mm -hmm. came back here um, and then it's kind of a longer course, um, split quite quite much down the middle academic so a lot of engineering theory engineering science a lot of heavy going stuff maths and things you know uh, engineering mathematics and things like that so you get a formal engineering qualification at the end and then kind of halfway through it's back onto the stuff that you you know your trade specific things like that Mm -hmm. so um did all that finished there in may 1999 uh posted to uh, I'd asked for to go back to Coltishall, um, asked to go up to Leeming because uh, it was been a Yorkshire lad, fancy been up there, um, tornadoes and things like that, but it wasn't to be. Um, so my initial posting came through to Coningsby, mm-hmm. and it was, I think it was going to be the Launcher Bay, and that wasn't for me. So <laughs> one of the other lads had got. Um, Harrier Squadron, Four Squadron, and he didn't fancy it, and I did. So we did a swapsy, and then that's when my sort of association with the Harrier started. Mm -hmm. So posted to Four Squadron, just at the very end of the RAF Germany thing, so 
uh, Larbrook shutting three and four squadron coming back. So I had a couple of trips to Larbrook, but just really, but essentially we were starting at uh, Cottesmore. Mm -hmm. um, the Tornado testing establishment, the Treble TE, they'd um, disbanded, finished. Um, and so we were kind of waiting around for a lot of the infrastructure to be changed there. Um, so it was a bit of a unsettled time when we moved in because the base was still geared for Tornado and then these Harrier upstarts all turned up from Germany. and So lots of uh, building work going on and things. So it's a you know busy time for us adapting into the new uh, into the new base and things. Mm -hmm. um, always busy with Harriers. Again, um, the Bosnia thing had finished and then almost straight away um, Kosovo, um, all the issues started there. So we were providing air support for them in Kosovo. Uh, again, back to Joy de Col, uh, living in the same hotels in the same <laughs> towns back in Italy again, just uh, with a different airframe. So uh, we spent, you know, an awful lot of time out there um, rotating around the other Harrier squadrons, mm -hmm. carrying out the commitment. Um, other things with the Harriers, obviously we, the, uh, they never told me about it when I joined the Air Force. They never said, oh, you'll be spending a lot of time at sea. But it turns out that that's what happens when you get on a Harrier squadron. So we ended up um, spending quite a bit of time at sea on the different carriers and things and doing a lot of Navy related training and getting used to shipborne stuff, which some people hated. I think it's a Marmite thing. You either loved it or hated it because I'm a bit of a geek. I liked it, you know, because it's different and it's not what I expected to do. So I really enjoyed it, that side of things. I found it um, just because it's different. It's interesting, it's a break from the norm. So um, yeah, we did various different courses to enable you to go and operate on the carrier. So sea survival courses, which I was less keen on. I only learned to swim in my uh, mid twenties, which was thanks to the uh, efforts of the uh, PT staff at Cosford. They succeeded where everyone else had failed and uh, managed to teach me to swim. But uh, I wasn't particularly keen on having to leap into the sea and things. It made me very sad. So uh, yeah, so that was one course that was different, but I'd rather not do again. Um, and then my, my first introduction to 808 was actually through one of those courses. So um, the Air Force decided they would send some of us to uh, Cold Rose to do a deck handling course so to learn how to marshal aircraft around on an aircraft carrier deck, obviously restricted space, but very different to what we're used to and things and how you operate with them on the, uh, on the, uh, on the deck. So it was quite quite different you know for us and when we got there sure enough the aircraft they have a big concrete dummy aircraft carrier deck essentially um, on the airfield and then we allow a load of these gr3s and practice taxi nose around whilst you stand in front of them desperately trying not to marshal it off the edge of the carrier deck and things so that's where i first met um 808 she was one of uh, one of the aircraft there so that's my first meeting with her probably 2000 somewhere like that i think somewhere like that my uh my not sure the exact date so yeah that's when i first met her and then once we'd done all those courses um ironically in fact after doing the deck handling course the navy said oh well we'll never let you marshal aircraft down on the deck anyway oh, all right then <laughs> so it was a, a week's uh, a different experience anyway so yeah we uh spent time on the carriers and things um 
various different uh, cruises, uh, I don't know if cruise is the right, right word, journeys around uh, various places on the carrier, uh, North Sea stuff, uh, around the UK generally short stuff. Um, one of the biggest ones I did, we flew out to Malta um, the day before 9-11 actually. Um, uh, we, were, we flew out to Luca uh, and met HMS Illustrious, she was in Valletta. Um, and then we had the day off next day and we were actually out uh, roaming around uh, Valletta, um, getting accustomed to the local sites, mainly in Bath. And uh, it's, uh, me and some other guys were actually in the, uh, the bar that Oliver Reed died in when he was filming Gladiator. And we were in there when uh, it all started appearing on the news. So uh, quite a momentous day for all the wrong reasons, unfortunately. So we went back to the ship um, rather naughtily they said oh we're going to cancel all shore leave so we quickly legged it back off the ship before they did and disappeared around the island drinking for the rest of the night and uh, when we got back um, obviously all hell had broken loose and the next day we set sail early and then we were off and we were off around the med doing a lot of uh, training things there went down through the Suez Canal with a carrier which is quite interesting um, all the way down through there and then round uh, in towards uh, the Indian Ocean and then we disembarked off the ship and we're on uh, Mazira, island off Oman there for quite a while doing a, an exercise but it was quite unusual in that this exercise had been planned for probably years and then suddenly 9-11 had happened and you know we were there trying to do an exercise and the Americans were turning up on a with everything ever on a huge war footing so our exercise was kind of shooed into the background a bit and uh, so yeah interesting and troubling times and things so that was quite a memorable cruise on the sh on the ship um yeah did various other ones i don't know you know probably spent you know months and months on board the ship it sort of all blends into one thing when you say sailing around um but yeah it was, I, I always enjoyed it because it's just different and things like that and it is you know pretty exhilarating if one want to use word exciting um launching you know harriers off a oh, yeah. off a carrier and things and we did do um in latter years did some missions launching aircraft off armed so obviously my role coming to the forte live weapons on and launching them into missions in afghan off um, off the carrier in the indian ocean so that's quite interesting doing that yeah, went all over with the Harriers. We used to do a lot of travelling with them, Canada with them, Alaska, all sorts of stuff. Um, so yeah, we got around all over. The thing that makes any squadron in the Air Force is the lads on it. We just had a great team, you know, they were all, um, that's what made it. No one ever wanted to go on leave because they didn't want to go away and miss anything. It was a kind of a big family thing, which I, I suspect probably comes from the Germany thing. So, you know, we're all, you know, one big family and stuff. And that still continues now. I mean, we've got the Harrier Force Association. We march, uh, I remember, on Sunday in, uh, in London at the Cenotaph. So, ironic, I spent 22 years desperately avoiding doing any parades in the Air Force because you don't want to do any parades. And the year I left, like, uh, do you fancy doing that? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll come on. So, uh, yeah, so uh, it's a, a real honour to do it. You know, it's one of the most humbling things I've ever done you know it really is something standing on the on the uh, you know down Whitehall when the gun goes off and there's thousands of people there and London's completely silent is a remarkable thing so it's a privilege to do it and especially so with the the company you know uh, you know 
So yeah, a great thing. I left Harriers in 2005. So I left them, I left Four Squadron Nerd. Um, I knew I was kind of coming up to a point where I'd get a post in. So I thought I'd better jump somewhere rather than get pushed somewhere I don't want to go. Um, and so I asked, uh, I don't know whether foolishly, I thought I might try something different. So I went to bomb disposal. So um, only up the road from Cottesmouth, Wittering. So still living in Rutland. Um, and then, yeah, started off with RAF bomb disposal. So I was there 2005 to 2013, so quite a long period. Um, certainly uh, not your average job, as, as you'd expect. Um, took me here, there and everywhere, doing various different things, conventional weapon disposal. So a lot of that in the UK. You know, we, have, we certainly had then two teams on call 24-7, all the time so a team to deal with conventional explosives been found you know which there's a surprising amount of in the UK to be found places people digging things up all sorts you know legacy things from the war and and various stuff like that and then a team that does uh, did counter-terrorism stuff so you'd have a, um, a, a, a IED team so called improvised explosive device so I qualified as a IED um, you know one of the IED guys um, interesting so you'll have seen all the bomb disposal robots things like that so obviously we learned to drive our low so covering incidents in the UK of which there there are frequently things you I mean you'll see them on the news stuff like that spent a lot of time out and about in that job you could come to work and then in the morning and then by the end of the day be off somewhere in a field digging up a you know a crashed aircraft that somebody had found with live weapons on or off or, you know so it was a real varied job and not like the norm almost like uh, albeit an armourer job but it's almost a bit like a separate trade really a lot of the training is done in conjunction with the army because a lot of it's joint service EOD explosive ordnance disposal so um, your courses are in conjunction with the navy so like my IED course and my conventional course were with Navy lads, uh, Royal Engineer lads, Royal Logistics course. So, um, yeah, so really interesting. Went all over outside the UK doing bits and pieces with that, all sorts of stuff. I was part of the last team in Iraq, the last UK EOD team in Iraq. Okay. When Iraq drew down, um, we handed over pretty much everything at Basra to the Americans. The US Navy came in and took over the EOD, so it was quite a quite an interesting time handing over after all that legacy stuff. Um, having been in Kuwait for the start of the second Gulf War Operation Telic with the Harriers, um, I kind of finished it with, uh, with RAF bomb disposal at the end when it was all drawing to a close and everyone pulling out and the Americans took over. So yeah, sort of there at the beginning and there at the end of it. So quite, you know, quite, yeah, quite, yeah, that closure and things like that. So it was, uh, remember uh, when we were getting on the uh, the Herc to fly out of Basra, um, sort of lingering, desperately trying to sort of linger behind so I could say I was the last one onto it. And uh, the uh, chief uh, who was there with us, Tony, he was like, get on you, I'm going to be the last one. I was trying to fight each other to be the last ones off the tarmac at Basra onto the aircraft. But, uh, yeah, so very different times. Come 2013, I'd been there quite a while and, you know, just don't want to let the grass grow under your feet too much. And 
was aware of not getting any younger and running around being shot at in places is a bit of a young man's game rather than an old decrepit knackered 40 some year old so I thought right well I'd uh, I quite fancy a uh, quite fancy a bit of a change and you know if at the beginning of my Air Force career you'd said oh you know do you fancy you know going and teaching people I'd, have, I'd probably look to you like you were mad but by then I sort of quite fancied the idea I've got a fairly sponge like brain for absorbing knowledge about stuff none of it useful like but uh, but certainly when it comes to aviation stuff a fairly fairly good knowledge and and I guess a lot of experience so I thought quite fancy teaching so um, volunteered to be an instructor at Cosford came and did a um, selection board where you come and you have to have a subject and you that you've researched and you present it to a board like a subject matter expert so there'll be you know it would have to be on a trade topics of armament and have like some armourers in there and they'll ask you questions to make sure you know what you're talking about and just how you conduct yourself and mm -hmm. things like that so uh, managed to pass that, wing it, whichever you uh, <laughs> whichever you want to want to use. So yeah, passed that, um, and then started there. Um, 2013, um, in between, sort of coming to the end of bomb disposal and going onto there, um, I had a phone call from uh, a gentleman, sort of almost a bit out of the blue, talking about Harriers, because I've always outside the Air Force I've always done stuff in aviation preservation before I joined the Air Force I'd sort of got involved at uh, been a Yorkshire lad I started off um, at Elvington at the Yorkshire Air Museum there and you know I saw that I went there again with my granddad you know when I was little and it was no museum it was just the empty buildings and in the long grass like up to me up to here as a kid and things then the museum started and sort of developed and visited it and things like that and then when I was old enough thought oh you know I'm quite interested to see if I can go and do stuff and then that was that you know started you know just going up there and doing odd little jobs and helping people out and then got involved with uh, the Victor with Andre Tempest he on the, owns the Victor and started with all that and then sort of continued really ever since then in conjunction with the Air Force stuff so I've always been involved with aviation outside and uh, so yeah just well, only uh, so beginning of beginning of 2013 yeah just sort of around Christmassy sort of time I had a phone call from this gentleman who was interested in uh, buying a Harrier and he'd, uh, he'd sort of been past my name as been someone who'd knows a bit about them and aviation preservation and you know the ins and outs and what's involved things like that and uh, that gentleman was the owner of this this base Mr Millington and uh, so Roy rang me up and we exchanged lengthy phone calls about anything to do with Harriers and everything in between and uh, and stuff like that for a number of hours and things and sort of uh, because he'd had the opportunity to potentially buy 808 so I kind of let him know what he was going to be getting himself in for and uh, you know that it's a black hole that you pour money into and not see yeah. kind of things and you have to do it for the love of it for not for any other reason but being an engineer and somebody who's you know extremely knowledgeable about anything to do with engineering and stuff like that he, he got that and uh, you can't just buy an aircraft you have to think about the other things so uh, need something to tow it with something to, to connect it to the tractor 
oils, the fuels, all the other things, anything, yeah, everything you can get for it. So it's not just a case of buying an aircraft. So that was that. Then in March 2013, I uh, went off to the Falcons for four months. So, um, turned out it was my final tour in the final overseas tour in the Air Force. So I was down there for four months running the armory. So looked after all the small arms for the entire island, basically. Um, and a secondary role doing explosive ordnance disposal down there. There's a lot of legacy minefields still left, things like that. So we go out and inspect the fences, make sure they were in a good state of repair. No one could get in livestock, things like that. Um, assisted with some minefield clearance down there with a civilian firm going and walking around in minefields, which is quite sobering, even though it's uh, perfectly safe. There's always that little bit of doubt and it definitely doesn't feel right to be climbing over minefield fences and walking about in them but it's uh, all the fun of the job so yeah I love this Falcons brilliant it's um, again a Marmite thing I think you'll either love it or hate it but it's what you make of it, isn't it? and I, I made sure because I'm old enough to remember the Falcons war I, I found it fascinating you could go and walk down that track that I'd seen you know that in that famous photo of the marine walking down there with a radio on the union jack flag there walk i walked down that stood where it, that photo was taken climbed up all the uh, mountains where the battles were tumble down harriet two sisters all those sort of things like that so really interesting for me um, so i made sure i just got out and saw as much as i could flew a lot went out in the hercs flying doing um, shipping surveillance stuff uh, air dropping supplies to places it was real good it's kind of a bit of an old-fashioned air force and old-fashioned mentality there where mm -hmm. everyone sort of knows everyone and you can, you can just turn up and go oh any chance any chance for a flight nerd oh, yeah yeah we'll sort out, yeah off you go and go flying hanging out the door taking photos of ships or chucking stuff off the ramp for people and things so it was real good i liked it and then when i came back from there it was straight here to cosford so um I was lucky in that it's always a case of who you know and not what you know and uh, my uh, a good friend of mine was the warrant officer in charge of the armament training school and he said um, whereabouts do you fancy working do you want to come and work here for me you know where whereabouts and there was the opportunity to work on the airfield at Cosford on 238 squadron and I said uh, no offence, I'd really quite fancy doing that down there the practical side with the aircraft and stuff so he very kindly facilitated it and I started work on 238 squadron on the line and that was finishing my career the way it started with Jaguar so we used um, them as uh, training airframes for the uh, new uh, new entrance into the air force so um, I'd see um, armourers coming through at the kind of at the, all at the end of their training phases at uh, Cosford, it's kind of like the culmination of everything before they and they get their postings when they're with us and then they're off to uh, they were off to wherever they were going at the end, providing they passed, of course. Um, so I'd see the armourers and then you'd see the AMMs, aircraft maintenance mechanics. So um, they were the guys who, in latter part of their career, would become either. Um, lights so avionics guys or heavies the engine slash airframe guys so we'd see all of those um and they'd be putting all the stuff they'd learned at cosford really into practice with us um 
probably split, I'd say, uh, roughly about a third in the classroom theory and then two thirds practical. So you're with them in the hangar, showing them how you inspect aircraft, how you service them, fuel them, fill them, you know, check the oils, all that sort of stuff. And then, uh, then we had running Jaguar aircraft. So we'd, yeah. you know, we'd have the aircraft up and running and they'd go through a start up with them and then marshalling them around the uh, the dispersals and things like that. So we'd teach them how to do all that uh, and things like that. And uh, after much nagging and me, like badgering the flight sergeant, they uh, agreed to let me be one of the uh, taxi pilots. So I got to, you know, drive those, drive those aircraft around um, and spent quite a lot of time doing it. I was really quite, quite lucky. It's a, you know, a bit different. So I've been a, you know, ground crew like a, and especially an armourer, um, to do it. There weren't ever many armourers. I think there's only um, me and one other armourer got to do it there. So it was usually the other trade. So I'm glad my nagging paid off. So yeah, it did work in the end. So uh, yeah, it was real good. You know, I loved driving them around and things like that. It was, it was great and entertaining trying not to or trying to depending on which way you were feeling not to run the uh, trainees over and things like that so yeah it's good really good um unfortunately they made the decision to stop using live aircraft um 2017 i think probably something like that 2016-17 uh i could have plenty of comment on my thoughts on it and I know they'd be echoed by a lot of people I worked with and the rights and wrongs of it uh, none of us could find any rights with it and it was a but you know it is what it is that's the Air Force sometimes decisions are made by people who don't see the bigger picture but uh, uh, and certainly I know I felt it you know had a detrimental effect on training uh, and I know a lot of other people did because there's no substitute for the real thing is that yeah. you know you can read about it all you like you can watch a powerpoint presentation about it but there's nothing like being physically picked up and gone right stand next to that yeah. running aircraft because it's a, that visual thing in front of you and it's alive and it's running and if you make a mistake you're going to end up hurt you know and uh, fear if that's the right word can be quite a good teacher sometimes so you've got that fear factor and that presence of the aircraft and stuff when you take that away I, you know i feel uh, we we all felt that it training lost something because there's no you've lost that realism mm -hmm. but uh, it was what it was um and so uh 2018 beginning of 2018 um that was my 22 years point um i'd felt that sort of I'd had a good run and done loads of stuff and uh, I thought it's a fair time to part company with the Air Force at 22. Um, you know, I, I always said to myself I wanted to get to 22 years. Um, various times along the way I thought, oh God, it's a long way. I don't know whether I'll get there, you know, because you, you can obviously leave at different points, 12, 15 years and stuff. But, you know, I made it to the end. I always said to myself, I want to do. So, you know, I did and thought I'm still young enough to pursue another career. The Air Force will pay me a pension as well, which is always nice. And so that was that. So came out uh, and then uh, now I work for a civilian air cargo airline, West Atlantic. So a joint Swedish UK company. So I work at East Mids. So I'm one of the engineers for them there at the moment. So I'm just uh, looking at going through my licenses, hopefully, if I can uh, 
persuade the Air Force to give me some money still. I think they still owe me one uh, educational grant, so I might use it for something practical because I can't think of anything else I'm going to use it for. So, um, that. so we operate a mixed fleet of uh, cargo aircraft, so predominantly 737s, um, classics, uh, some next-gen. We've got four next-gen 800 series. Um, ATPs, the old venerable British Aerospace ATP. Um, we've still got quite a few of those. Uh, we've just reactivated two that have been in like storage, long-term storage at, at Coventry for years. And they've just got them going. So they've gone, uh, done a ferry flight to the Isle of Man and um, they've, uh, they're gonna be back into service soon. Um, got some 767s. Uh, I never see them. They're uh, based over in Europe. So they do some of the big longer routes and stuff nice aircraft but I'm generally not too involved with them as I say they don't come over to the UK um, and then we've got some couple of CRJ um, 200 bombardier jets and they they operate right up Norway and things like that and they do routes up to Svalbard right up far 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 north of you know in the uh, Arctic Ocean and they take all the supplies in their mail and things like that so we've got a it's a big big concern um, so and quite high pressure compared to passengers you know if uh, if your aircraft's delayed a bit they give you all a free a voucher for a free coffee and things or something like that but everyone wants their post when it's supposed to be there they want their parcel of ordered from amazon on time i've paid for amazon prime it should be here blah blah, blah. so there's a lot of pressure with the cargo stuff which not having been in commercial aviation before you just kind of don't really think of and then it's only when you get involved you think oh lord you know people like when's the aircraft going to be fixed is it ready yet is it ready yet where's those parts is it done yet are you ready yet there's that all the time so it's real high pressure but um yeah so it's it's different and a lot similar to the air force and the military but uh, yeah a lot that's different as well so a new challenging career but and a bit of a steep learning curve for me having to learn new aircraft types seven threes and stuff but it's slowly sinking in a bit so starting to learn the aircraft and the foibles and things so yeah so there we go